Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you if you're new or visiting. Uh, my name is Tyler David. I'm a downtown AM campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, as you're turning there, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the sermon. Today is our last week before we get back into Ephesians next week. We had the summer preaching series, had Andy last week, myself this week's little standalone sermons. And then next week we get back into Ephesians and we enter into our vision series called Far More. And we're so excited about this and for the life of us as a, as a people, as a campus, as a church, what God's going to do in this season. We can't wait to see what happens. I hope you guys will come back in the coming weeks to be with us through that season. And as this fall begins, as we get back kind of in our normal schedules, our normal routines, our normal rhythms, I hope you got away this summer and got some time to reflect, some time to rest, some time to get refreshed for what God's going to do this fall. I know that happened for me a couple weeks in July. I got away, got to be reminded that, okay, I love Jesus. He's worth everything. I had a really great time this summer. But as I was reading and as I was praying, there was kind of one truth that kind of kept coming up, this one doctrine that's kept coming up and again and again and again, like, like a splinter in my mind kept coming up. It was this doctrine, this truth of resurrection. This truth of resurrection. See, I began to contemplate Christ's resurrection and my own impending resurrection, and as I did that this summer, I learned something. I learned that I don't think about the resurrection all that often. I mean, I may talk about heaven generally, but I don't talk about specifically the resurrection itself. I don't think about it a ton. And even when I do think about it, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine people getting up from the dead never to die again. I began to think about it, and it's tough to talk about. Because in this day and age, it, I'm not really surprised by anything because we've seen everything. Like if you go on YouTube, you can literally see almost anything you'd like to see. And so nothing really shocks us anymore, nothing really wows us anymore because we've seen most things. And so we talk about resurrection, talk about people getting up from the dead it feels kind of like a science fiction movie. It feels kind of fake almost, like is that really possible? And so it's hard to imagine, because it's hard to imagine we don't talk about it all that much. We don't, even in the church, we don't really talk about the resurrection often. We I mean Easter, maybe through some suffering, maybe at a funeral, but in day in, day out, conversations in this church, I don't hear many people talking about the resurrection. And it, there's a lot of reasons for this, but the reason I want to hit today, the reason I want to put before you today as to why we don't talk about the resurrection much is this. We shrink the gospel to just this life. We tend to shrink all that God's doing in Christ to just this life. We shrink it, and we tend to focus on all the things God's doing now. We tend to focus on how he changes us now. How his love changes our relationships now. How his forgiveness of our sins refreshes us now. How his Holy Spirit begins to heal us now. We tend to focus on what God has already brought into existence through Christ, but we don't think about the future very much. We don't think about what God's going to do in Christ. And when we do this, when you only think about now, you only think about what God's brought into existence now, you miss out on the best parts of salvation. You miss out on the very best parts of salvation. All the best parts for the Christian are yet to come. They are. It reminds me of getting engaged and getting married. I remember when I first asked Lauren to marry me on Mount Bunnell, as soon as she said yes, 
in that moment, in an instant, everything was different. In an instant, she said yes, so now our lives, our relationship, our trajectory is altogether different now. Altogether different because she said yes. An engagement is, is a fun time. An engagement, you get to talk about your future and dream about your future and plan to your life together. An engagement is great, but it's just a means to an end. It's just a means to an end. You're not meant to stay in engagement. Engagement is this time where you have all the problems and none of the benefits. None of them. You're meant to move past that into marriage. But could you imagine if I got engaged to Lauren and I was talking to some of my friends and said, hey, you know what, we're really enjoying engagement, love it. We're just gonna stay engaged forever. If I said that, you're like, man, we just love it, we're never getting married, you would think you're crazy and y'all are being shady for sure. Like, that's what you would think. That's, and you should think that, okay? Because engagement is still this frustrating process because there's limits to how you overlap your lives together. There's limits to how you experience one another. Engagement is great, but it's meant to lead you to marriage. In the same way this life, in the same way with this life, it's meant to get us ready for the next one. This life is meant to get you ready for the next one. I see at the moment you confess your sin and believe the gospel, in that moment you're saved. In that moment you know God for sure and you begin to be changed now. Things change now, the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you now, those things happen, but, but your experience of what he's already done continues to increase. And the experience of what he's already done, this salvation starts in this life but it carries you on and leads you on to the next one. That's the way salvation works. So what I want you to look at today with me in 1 Corinthians 15 is the important and prominent role the resurrection plays in God's salvation. You see the resurrection for all that it is. And whether you've been following Jesus for decades or, for, or today's your first day, no matter where you are, when you see the resurrection, when you see what God's gonna do for those who trust him, it'll make you want to obey more now. When you see the resurrection, you're gonna want to give more away now. So before we talk about our resurrection, we're gonna talk about Christ's resurrection. There, there is no our resurrection without his. See, the fact that Jesus died and rose again is foundational to the Christian faith. Foundational, there's no argument about it, there's no debate about it, there's no wiggle room about it. You have to believe to know God, Jesus died and rose again. They're fundamental pillars of the faith. To be Christian is to believe those things. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us these truths are of first importance. There are a lot of truths about God and about us in the Bible we need to know, but of first importance that he died and rose again. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight. Three through eight, this is the word of God. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is writing this letter to a very dysfunctional church in Corinth. They have all sorts of dysfunctions in their relationships with each other. 
There, there's division among them because one, certain people like this church leader and other people like this church leader. There's sexual sin, there's lawsuits, there's marriage problems, there's idolatry, on and on I could go. And all these problems Paul addresses. He deals with them in the book. But at the very end, he says, but you have to know one thing of first importance. Jesus died and he got up from the grave. He goes into great detail about the resurrection because he wants them to know Jesus didn't just resurrect spiritually. It wasn't that Jesus was, he died and he's still on the ground, but his soul went to heaven. No, that's not what happened. His physical body got up. And not only did the apostles see him, but hundreds of people saw him. Paul tells them, some are still alive, go ask them. They saw the physical risen Lord Jesus. Paul says, I even got to see him later on. And this Jesus reigns over everything in his resurrected human body. That's who this Jesus is. It's really important that we know that. And the reason it's so important is that Jesus' resurrection, if his resurrection doesn't happen, we are still in our sins. If his resurrection does not happen, if he just dies and stays in the ground, then we're still in our sins. We haven't been forgiven. Look at what Paul says in verse 17 through 19. Verse 17 through 19, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Jesus rising from the dead is absolutely essential to us being forgiven by God. See, Jesus didn't just die. If he just died and didn't rise, that means he didn't conquer the curse of sin, death. If he just dies for sin but stays in the ground, he didn't conquer the curse of sin, which is death. Death has, has not always been, by the way. It feels very normal to us, but it's not. It's not. No, death came because there was Adam and Eve in the garden, and all of us have joined in this rebellion. We had this life where we could have lived with God forever, under his reign and rule and leadership forever, everything perfect forever. And Adam and Eve, like the rest of us, said, I don't want that. I want to find my own way. I don't want your leadership. I don't want your rule. I don't want your reign. I don't want your word. I want mine. So what happened, death came in. The judgment for our sin and rebellion was death. So death and sin are linked to one another. And so if Jesus doesn't conquer death, then he doesn't conquer sin. See, for you to truly conquer death, you have to pay for sin. And to truly pay for sin means you'll conquer death. They're tied to one another. And so when Jesus gets up out of the grave, it's not like a cherry on top. He died for sin, fantastic. He got up, that's cool too. That's not, that's not how it is. No, the resurrection is the sign that he did indeed pay for sin. See, his death accomplishes salvation, but his resurrection is this beacon to the cosmos saying he won. That's what the resurrection is, is saying, no, no, you can trust his death for you because he got up. Death could not hold him. See, through his resurrection, we know the curse has been lifted for those who trust him. And death will be no more one day. See, his resurrection is essential. But unfortunately for us, this is where we stop. We hear that and we stop right there because we think, hey, his work's finished, now we just kind of enjoy it. 
Just kind of follow him in this life. That's kind of what our lot is. But see, his death for us means we won't die for sin. But his resurrection now means, since we're united with him, if you're in Christ, if you're united with him, his resurrection now means you get resurrected like him. Look at what it says in the next verse, in verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, Jesus is just the beginning, the firstfruits of God resurrecting every single one of his people. He's the firstfruits. See, the text says every human being is born under Adam. You're born under his leadership. And so under his leadership, you share his fate of death. But now when you trust Christ, you come under his leadership and you share in his fate, which is resurrection from the dead, to live forever. That's the fate that we share with him. So hear me very clearly. Hear this very clearly. Having a resurrection like Christ is the ultimate hope of the gospel. Having a resurrection like his is the ultimate hope of the gospel because in this life, there will be moments There'll be moments where you see the kingdom of God at work. These moments, this snapshot where you get to see that's what God's kingdom is like. A marriage gets reconciled. Someone gets healed. People are coming to Christ. You have these moments where God's power bubbles up and you see this is the kingdom. But in this life, those moments get replaced very quickly with the grim reality that this world is still broken. You have those moments, but then they're flooded with suffering. They're flooded with more discontent in that relationship, more strife in that relationship, more death in this world, and you're reminded the resurrection hasn't come yet. See, even the greatest works and the power of God in this life cannot compare to his power in the next. It cannot compare to his power in the next. Think about it this way. In Jesus' ministry, he did incredible works. Before he died and rose again, he had a ministry for three years. He did incredible works. He would heal people who've been sick for years. No one could fix them. And in a moment, with his words, they're healed in a moment. He even raises people from the dead. These incredible works of God, and yet, and yet those works will not compare to the, his work at the resurrection. Why? Because every single person he healed got sick again. Every single person who felt this incredible moment where the sickness that had enslaved them for years, and the moment it's gone, they got sick again. Every single person that Jesus raised from the dead during his ministry, the widow's son, the ruler's daughter, Lazarus, all of them died again. They get raised up, but they've experienced death again. See, in this life, you only get glimpses of what's to come. In this life, you get these moments again and again and again where you're reminded that's where we're going. But you realize we're not there. This is what Paul says in the, in the letter earlier in 1 Corinthians 2. Don't turn, they'll be on the screen behind me. It says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
can't imagine what's to come for the people of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, on the day of the resurrection, you're finally going to see the kingdom of God in its fullness. The whole universe is going to get remade. The earth is going to get remade to display his glory in ways it can't right now. We're going to get bodies with no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. Satan and death will be destroyed. And our adoption will be complete. See, right now the people of God are legally adopted kids. We're legally adopted, but we're still in a distant country waiting to get home. And in that resurrection moment, we'll finally come home to our Father and enjoy all the rights of his children. See, God is going to remake everything, not just not to separate us from God, but everything's going to promote our relationship with him. Everything will be made so we can know God forever. This is what N.T. Wright says. The claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. A new creation. God is just getting started in this life. He's just getting started. All the greatest blessings are yet to come. But like I said, we shrink it, don't we? We don't think about that. We shrink it to here and now. And there are all sorts of negative reasons why we do that. We love this world. We have idolatry. All sorts of reasons that are negative that we do that. But I want to mention a more nuanced one. A more nuanced one that's harder to detect as being incorrect. See, I think we neglect the resurrection, neglect thinking about it, neglect thinking about the future because we want to believe and we know that God cares about now. That God cares about now. We want the city to know that God is not just interested in some future version, but he wants now. He cares about now. He loves now. We want to represent him faithfully. So we don't want to get so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that statement before. And we buy into this myth that if you think too much about the life to come, you'll neglect this one. Maybe you've met people like this. Maybe you've been a person like this. You've talked a lot about heaven only to neglect your family. Talked a lot about heaven only to neglect the poor. Talk a lot about heaven only to justify actions that you shouldn't do, and you see other people who don't talk about heaven as much, and they love people more. And so we buy into this lie that if I think too much about the resurrection, too much about the next life, it'll decrease my ambition, decrease my service, decrease my love for people in this one. That's the myth and the lie that we buy. Could I tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, the exact opposite is true. There is no one in this life who's genuinely thinking about God's coming kingdom and their resurrection who's not actively serving in this one. It's a straw man. That doesn't exist. If they're talking about heaven and they're not doing that, they don't understand the resurrection. They don't understand the next life. No, here's actually what happens. So many of us in this room are sluggish in our love sluggish in our service, sluggish in our sacrifice, precisely because we rarely think about the resurrection. Precisely because we're so inundated and ingrained in this one that we don't know how to live for the next one. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I love this quote. He says, if you read history, 
you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. See, it's the reality of the resurrection that always has and always will embolden the people of God to obey. Embolden you to obey the word of God at great cost to yourself for the good of other people, to the worship and praise of Jesus. And when you deny the resurrection, when you forget the resurrection, when you pay no attention to the resurrection, you become sluggish. Your desires for God become apathetic. This is what Paul says in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying if there's no resurrection, then yeah, spend this life on you. If there's no resurrection, yeah, get as much as you can and enjoy it as long as you can. That's the logical end of thinking there's no resurrection. And it happens in us so often that what begins to happen, our desires shrivel up, that all we can do is focus on self and sensuality. That's all we can do. See, what happens is we get so in this life and not thinking about the next that our desire to risk anything decreases. The desire to risk anything decreases because why would you? All you have is this. What begins to happen is the desire to choose the path of the unknown of sacrifice and love for other people. You don't want to go down it. Why? Because you might lose something. Actually, you know, if I choose this path, I'm going to lose something. And so we don't know how to obey. And ultimately, this is where our heart, all of our hearts, your heart, my heart, it drifts here. It drifts here. We so easily begin to see life this way. We become most concerned by having the best experiences, the best relationships, the best everything now. Now. Now, you may not say that. You may know better than to say that out loud, but our lives scream this. Our lives scream that this is true. Our lives testify that we struggle with this because you see it, you see it when the word of God, obeying it's gonna cost you something. See, none of us mind obeying and trusting God. What he says to do, we love to do. Oh God, I love doing that. I would love to obey you in that way. It's the times when he says, go do this, and you know it's going to cost you something you enjoy. That's when we bristle. That's when we complain. That's when we procrastinate. That's when we justify. That's when we begin to make this kind of theology of this God who would never challenge me. This God who would never tell me to do anything that costs me anything. He loves me too much to make me lose something. We begin to have that thinking of God and his main thesis statement is this, eat and drink and do what you like for tomorrow you die. Eat and drink and just be really nice. Don't be overly mean to anybody and you'll be great. See, it's not that every command of God feels impossible, just the ones that cost. It's not all the commands of God that will feel this way to you. It's the particular ones that you know if you choose them, you're going to have to lose something. And then it begins to feel impossible to do things that you know you're supposed to, to do things like forgive someone 
but they haven't apologized. Or they've hurt you really, really deeply, and you don't want to forgive them because you'll have to lose a sense of justice, a sense of self-righteousness, to trust that God will dole out justice as he sees fit. It feels impossible to be as generous as God says with our money and possessions because we know we're going to have to lose this sense of security and comfort and status and acceptance. It feels impossible to only express sexuality in the way that God designed it for a man and woman in marriage. That's the only way. And then we know to do that, to say yes to that means I'll have to lose acceptance. I'll have to lose some sort of pleasure. I'll have to lose something. Those are just three ways, but on and on I could go of how following Jesus means you'll have to lose something. Some sort of comfort, some sort of approval, some sort of power, some sort of control. Can I tell you, when this is the case, when you have this thinking, if all you have in mind is this life, then following Jesus should feel impossible. If all you have in mind is this life, then following Jesus should feel impossible. I mean, if there's nothing more coming for the people of God, why lose anything? Why risk anything? If there's nothing coming for us, why not just try to find a way to love Jesus and not lose anything? Why not try to find a way that I can follow Jesus and lose nothing? Because when you read the Gospels, this incredible Jesus who reigns over everything He wants everything. When you read the scriptures, you see he is relentless. Today, he's relentless for you. He always wants more. Don't ever think Jesus is like, yep, I'm good, you're fine. Let's just ride this thing out. That's not how it works. Jesus has this passion. He's like, I want more. I don't want part of your heart. I want all of it. That's what Jesus is like. See, he calls us to do things that only make sense if there's a resurrection. To give away things that only make sense if there's a resurrection. That's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, if in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. He says, if Christians only have this life, people should feel bad for us. People should feel bad for us. Here's the question that has genuinely been haunting me the last couple of months, and I hope the Spirit of God will use it to haunt you. Am I living a life that only makes sense in light of the resurrection? Am I living a life that would make no sense if the dead aren't raised? Does my bank account, does my schedule, do my relationships Is my disposition, is my evangelism, is my beliefs, is my hope in suffering of such a quality that it doesn't make any sense if this life is all there is? Or could you explain my life pretty easily? Could you look at my life and say, yeah, that makes sense. He's a young guy, young family. It's kind of what those people do. He lives in Austin, that's kind of what most people think. He lives in America, that's kind of lifestyle people have. I wonder what the answer to the question is for you. Are you, if you're in Christ, do you have a life that demands an explanation? Do you have a life that says, they must believe there's another life coming. I don't know why they would believe that, do that, risk that, give that. 
Makes no sense. And if you ask that question, if you're honest about that question, I'm telling you, God's gonna do in you what he did to me. You're gonna find out you had a lot of sin you didn't know you had. A lot of sin you didn't know you had. That as I began to ask that question, what God began to show me is that I'm treating time and my energy level as if I need to hoard some and I need to take care of myself. That I've put these unconscious limits on what I'll do. Okay, if it's this time of the day and I've worked this, these many hours, then no one can ask anything of me. I can't get to know other people in my neighborhood. That's ridiculous. I've already done so much today. For me, one of the, probably the most humbling one was for all the ways I think I'm bold and all the ways I think I'm courageous, I've just found from this, asking this question, I'm still terrified of death. It still dictates a lot of my decisions. I don't believe I'm gonna get up. I believe death has the final word. I'm not sure what God will bring up if you ask that question. I'm not sure. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's gonna bring up in your heart as you ask that question. But can I tell you the solution? The solution is not to hear the sin and to see it and to go, okay, okay, I promise God, I'll never do it again. That's not the solution. That's not my solution. Solution is to get your eyes off of yourself and look at this resurrection. To remember that the resurrection is not warranted by your life, it's warranted by Jesus's. His life warrants resurrection. His life gives resurrection. I know it's gonna happen, not because I've been great, not because I've been good, but because he has. And when you think about that you're gonna be raised no matter what because he was raised, now that begins to bring strength and energy and power to places you never thought you could obey. All of a sudden, you have this desire to give away things you never wanted to before. Why? Because you're gonna inherit all things one day with Christ. That even though it feels like a risk for us, ultimately it's not. It's not. It's this resurrection that Jesus has secured for you, that Jesus promises for you, that Jesus will bring the past for you, that causes us to live lives that should be pitied if there's no resurrection. The resurrection is the only reason why you'd want to give away more time, more energy more effort, more money, more reputation, more status, more of your dreams away for other people. If you believe this resurrection is coming, the fuel, the fuel for radical obedience now is remembering and thinking about the radical resurrection to come. I wanna close our time together by the way Paul closes in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul closes this whole chapter on the resurrection. He closes with this incredible vision of what is the future of every Christian. And if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you haven't trusted Jesus yet, this will be your future the moment you receive his grace. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. It says this. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. This incredible picture of resurrection. That in a moment, God's going to say, get up. Rise, all of my people forever. That's your future, Christian. No matter what suffering comes, no matter the darkness that overwhelms you, this will be God's final edict for you. Rise. That will be his last word. And it's that vision, that reality, that when you see it, look at how Paul concludes this text. He says, this resurrection is incredible. Look at what the application is for us. Therefore, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor Your labor is not in vain. Everything you give, everything you spend, everything you sacrifice in this life, when you open those new eyes of yours and new heavens and new earth, you're going to open them and the first thing you're going to think is gain. I didn't lose any of it. Gain. That's why we give. That's why we're steadfast. That's why we're immovable. That's why we abound now. Because none of it, church, none of it will be given away or spent in vain. Let's pray. Father, we want to praise you and thank you for such a great salvation. That all that we have experienced in this life in Christ is just the beginning. God, I want to pray in particular for those in this room who are going through tremendous suffering. For those in this room who hear passages like this, but all they can see is darkness. All they can see is death. All they can see is suffering. It doesn't feel very real right now. God, would you remind them that this will be the final word for them? That death will not have the last word. That as sure as Jesus has been risen, so will we. And God, I'm asking that you would give your people a faith and a love for this future world that we would give everything away in this one. That we wouldn't have things that are off limits, that we wouldn't think that there are things that you don't want. And God, we wouldn't think that somehow our lives warrant such a great salvation. God, only Jesus can do that. So God, would you make us a people who see you and trust you and see this resurrection and see this hope and we live lives that should be pitied without it. That we start to think about and contemplate what does it look like to move towards a life that doesn't make any sense apart from the resurrection. God, none of us will get there without you. None of us will believe these things without your spirit. So God, give us grace. Humble us under your word and give us passion to love you to our very last day. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.